So brothers and sisters, uh, we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark together the last uh, eight weeks now. just want to ask, how goes your walk? How goes your walk through this Gospel together? We remember the disciples have been walking with Him. We remember when Jesus said, come follow me and I will make you fish for people. And ever since, they've been walking with Him and they've been seeing how He's been drawing all kinds of reactions that are totally varied. Uh, He's amazed crowds, drawing people from all over Israel and beyond. And it says, whenever the impure spirits saw Him, they fell down before Him and they cried out, you are the Son of God. So the demons recognize it, but on the other hand, the teachers of the law said, his power is coming from the devil. The Pharisees and the political group supporting Herod, the Herodians, they are working together to kill him. His own family thinks he's crazy. His hometown has rejected him, thinking he's no more than one of them. King Herod thinks that he's John the Baptist come from the dead, and now he's worried. And what about the disciples? They've seen him feed the masses twice, Now, they've seen him walk on the water, and when he calmed that storm on the Sea of Galilee, they asked, who is this that even the wind and waves obey him? So now in Mark chapter 8, I invite you to turn there with me if you'd like to follow along in your Bibles or your phone. In Mark 8, it's time for the disciples to answer their own question. First, Jesus asked them, what are other people saying about me? And then he asked them directly, what about you? Verse 29, who do you say I am? And what follows in this section is the very heart and center of the gospel of Mark. This is the question that he's been driving at this whole time, is who is Jesus? Who is Jesus of Nazareth? This is the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of Christianity itself, and we all must continually wrestle with that question and the claims the answer makes upon us. And so we must all come to terms with our own response to Jesus. Now, Jesus, he asked a lot of questions. Uh, Questions are powerful tools for our own discipleship. So I'm not going to give you any points today, but I want to talk about four indispensable questions for our own discipleship. And the first is this. Who do I say Jesus is? Who do I say Jesus is? is? This is the essential question. Now, Jesus recognizes that people have their own idea of who He is. He recognizes that, uh, that, you are, that you are aware that not everyone views Him in the same way. He knows that you have multiple options, if you will, to choose from. And when Jesus asked His disciples, who do people say that I am? You know, some thought John the Baptist, that was Herod and his followers, likely. Others thought he was Elijah, and others thought he was a prophet. It's kind of someone like Isaiah or Jeremiah. He's one one in in that line. Now, these aren't the options that most people around us would probably give to this answer, to this question, right? If Jesus asked people of our day, who do people say that I am, what might might people say? Perhaps he's, he's a great moral teacher. He's a spiritual principle to follow, but not really God. He's one of the many ways of getting in touch with your spiritual life. He's a religion that my parents or my grandparents taught me about. There's a lot of options. There's a lot of opinions out there. But Jesus wants to know, who do you say that He is? Who do you say I am? Now, Jesus, 
He's not looking for your affirmation. He's not looking for your approval. He's not looking for your personal opinion. He's not looking for you to say what's expected of you, what your family wants you to say, what you think you should say. He wants to know really where you're at. Who do you say Jesus is? And Jesus wants to know where his disciples are at after all of this time of walking together. Because essential to our, to our discipleship is recognizing who Jesus is. Now, uh, Levi, who just turned one, my son, he's beginning to babble some words. And I've been beginning to ask him, where's daddy? Where's daddy? And he'll begin, he'll begin, he'll begin to point and he'll say, ah, da, da. And I will, I will celebrate. I'll say, yes, you got it. And I'm like, you're darn right I'm your da-da been changing your diaper for 369 days and waking up with you at night. Darn right, I'm your dad. No, <laughs> but I celebrate it because, ah, oh, even in his little understanding that he has, he knows that I care for him. He knows my love. He recognizes. Even in his little understanding, he knows who I am. He recognizes me. We celebrate that. And I think that's a little bit of what is going on here. Jesus wants his disciples to recognize who he is. Where's the Messiah? Where's the Messiah? Do you recognize him? Do you recognize me yet? You've seen all that I've done. You've been with me this whole time. Who am I? And Peter seemingly gets it right. Verse 29, Peter answers, You are the Messiah. And you think that Jesus would be Jumping up and down. You got it right, buddy. Woo, you recognize me. You got the right answer. Finally, good job. None of that happens. Why? Verse 30 says Jesus warns them not to tell anyone about him. Why this response? Well, this gets me to my second question. I'll give you, and it hints at the answer. What wrong expectations do I put on Jesus because of my culture and my upbringing? What wrong expectations do I put on Jesus because of my culture or upbringing? The reason Jesus is not all that thrilled yet is because he knows there's a great misunderstanding about what the word Messiah means, both out in the world, if people found about, out about this, he's going to get in trouble, but he also knows that his disciples really don't understand it yet either. They have no idea. And this is why he goes into some teaching that he has never given them before up until this moment. He's going to clarify for them what the word Messiah means. That's why he says in verse 31, look what it says. He then began to teach them. In other words, this is something he has never taught them before. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed after three days and rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And it says, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Wow! And this is a strong word. This is the same word used to, like, to rebuke and cast out demons. And it, isn't it shocking to read that Peter has the audacity to rebuke Jesus? This is the one that he saw rebuke the wind and the waves. And they listened. And now he's rebuking Jesus? Wow. In turn, Jesus rebukes Peter. 
I almost wanted to call this sermon the greatest argument in the Bible. <laughs> They're rebuking each other back and forth. And in verse 33, it says, When Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. These are strong words that Jesus has for Peter. He sees satanic influence in what Peter is saying and human concerns. And so Jesus, essentially what he's saying here is, get out of my sight. Just get out of my sight. Get away from me. Now, friends, what seems to be going on here is that Peter had a very different idea of what the Messiah was supposed to be. And the disciples, they're included in this too because Jesus turns to them all. So it's safe to assume they all had this expectation. And as many of you know, most expected that the Messiah would be a real human king who would be on the throne centered in Jerusalem, reestablishing the nation of Israel. They would defeat Israel's enemies and it would be a, a, a political and militaristic understanding of the Messiah. Does that make sense? A political king who's going to have a military victory over Israel's enemies. That's what they wanted. And it's, I think we sometimes give the disciples grief about this, but let's also humanize this and understand that this is a people who have been living under tyranny. They've been living under the oppressive Roman Empire, their taxation and their foreign rule, and they don't respect Yahweh. So they long, they long for someone to come and set them free out of this situation. And then Jesus confirms, yeah, I'm the Messiah. I'm the king coming to bring salvation to the people. But then it says he speaks plainly, not in a parable. So this, he's making this plain, that he's going to be rejected by all the religious leaders and be killed. Now, this makes absolutely no sense to Peter given his understanding. His hopes are totally dashed. What Jesus is saying is totally backwards to him. It's, it's almost like if uh, the Chicago Bears hired a new head coach, and at the press conference he said, you know, my plan this year is we're just going to go ahead and lose all our games. We're going to throw every game. People would be like, what? I mean, I know we lose a lot anyway, but come on. That's not the plan. That's not the plan. This doesn't make sense. But Peter was allowing his culture's understanding of the Messiah to determine how he viewed Jesus. He had his own idea of what the term Messiah meant. One scholar, William Lane, says, It was imperative that the disciples should not be allowed to fill the content of the term with their own dreams. So Peter was absolutely right and saying that Jesus was the Messiah, but he was totally wrong in his understanding of what that meant. He filled the term with his own dreams. And the same can be true of us in our understanding. We can say, Jesus, you're Lord. Jesus, you're my Savior. But what do we mean? We can fill those terms with our own understanding because of our upbringing and our culture and what we've been taught. Or perhaps we filled the term with what we talked about last week, the leaven of the Pharisees and that of Herod, meaning that we allow what's going on in the political world around us to seep into our understanding of the kingdom of God. So given all that, let me ask you again, 
What wrong expectations do I put on Jesus because of my culture or upbringing? If Jesus is good news to the poor, why do I expect him to help me get wealthy and keep my wealth? If Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, why do I want him to help me win a culture war? If Jesus is the Lamb of God, why do I expect him to line a lion with a donkey or an elephant? If Jesus' mission is to save the nations, why do I expect him to be so concerned about American-centric things? If Jesus tells us to love our enemies, why do we expect him to help us to defeat them? Like Peter, we want a conquering Messiah, not a suffering Messiah. And I believe there are many Christians, maybe especially in my generation and younger, they've, they've grown up in the church, they were taught about Jesus, but they were also taught all of these other things that, that fill the content of those terms with things that are in our culture. Do you know, do you know what I'm saying? Uh, they, and they wonder, well, if Jesus in the church are associated with all that, then I'm not sure that I want it. I'm not sure that I want in. If that's what it all comes with. Now, let me say to you, if, that, if that's you, before you reject Jesus, would you at least tell me what you reject about him first? Because I actually might agree with you. Because you might be, it's not, it might not be the real Jesus you're rejecting. Let's discern. We need to examine what wrong expectations are we attaching to Jesus? Now, if Jesus would ask most evangelical Christians, who do you say I am? I think it's safe to say that most would say, he's my Lord and Savior. That's kind of the terminology we use, right? He's my Lord and Savior. Now, what meaning do we give to these terms? Jesus is Lord. Man, isn't it hard to treat him as Lord when you don't know any lords? Uh, does anybody know a Lord here? Okay, no, no one. No one knows. There's no lords or kings around here and so on. So we can begin to fill this term with our own understanding. Jesus is like a mentor or a guide or, or a leader or a consultant or a manager or something like that or, or an elected official. Not, none of these things. So we, we need to remember that he is our king. And what he commands are not suggestions or wise ideas. They're commands from the one who reigns upon the throne in heaven. As Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but don't do what I say? We're not, we're not, we're not filling the term Lord with the right understanding. We also say Jesus is my Savior. Now, what do we mean? Savior from what? I've heard some Christians say, you know, well, I can't believe in the concept of eternal judgment because I was taught that, you know, Jesus loves everybody. I don't think Jesus would ever judge anybody ever. I would say, well, would you consider, maybe you're doing the Peter thing right now. We're importing the pluralistic, relativistic, therapeutic culture that we're in onto Jesus. Because when you read the Gospels, yes, Jesus does love us. And because of that, he came to die for us. And he taught regularly about the danger of judgment. The sheep and the goats, the house on the rock, the rich man and Lazarus, the rich fool whose life is demanded from him the cutting off of limbs so that we can enter the kingdom of heaven, and so on and so on. So we call him Savior. Why? Well, verse 31, Jesus said, he must suffer many things. He must. This is necessary. 
Why was it necessary? You guys know this. His death was necessary to pay for our sins, to release us from condemnation, to defeat death itself, to defeat Satan, and to unite us to God in heaven forever. Without His death and resurrection, we have no hope. We have no hope. None of this would be possible. We call Him Savior because He saves us out of this mess, this realm of sin and death and decay. He saves us from that because of His blood shed on the cross and His resurrection to everlasting life. We're forgiven in Christ. We could go over the many things that we call Jesus, and just this could be a good spiritual exercise. Just examine, what do I mean when I call Him friend, deliverer, redeemer, master, teacher, king? What meaning do I give to these titles and why? So we ask, in what ways has my own culture, my own upbringing impacted the way that I view Jesus? And is it possible to begin to escape out of this? How do we escape this? First, I would say we got to keep reading the Gospels over and over again. we got to keep letting Jesus shape and inform our understanding of who He is. We have to be immersed in the Gospels. And I would also say this is the value of diverse friendships. Diverse friendships. I have greatly benefited from people with different perspectives and especially from different cultures than my own who have pointed out some different ways of seeing things, some of my blind spots, and I've been able to be corrected. Um, We need a, a diversity of perspectives to help us clear the weeds of the things that we attach to Jesus that aren't really Jesus. Now, I didn't get to tell you very much about uh, the Midwinter Conference uh, that I went to. It's a conference for covenant pastors and leaders. And uh, many of you may not know this, or maybe you're newer to the covenant, um, and this is not a bragging point, but it's just true. The covenant denomination is the most diverse denomination in the United States. So when you go to covenant events, I think many of you, you would be shocked at the diversity. And so I went to a workshop put on by four Native American pastors. And they were uh, telling us, and we were dialoguing about the tragic legacy of what's happened to Native Americans in this country and how it's still impacting their communities and the congregations that they serve today. And some of you, you're shocked that we have Native American pastors in the covenant, but it's true. And uh, one, of the covenant, these, one of these Native covenant pastors was relaying a story how one of the uh, European missionaries, it was a story something like this, one of the European missionaries had come back to native Alaska and was meeting with uh, some of the native Christians there and uh, was relaying the story. And the European uh, American, you know, said, we need to apologize. We assumed that in order for you to become like Jesus, you had to become like us. And that was wrong. And that was wrong. And that, was, that, that is a lesson As you look at the history of missions over the last 200 years, the assumption that people had to become Western culture in order to come to Christ did a lot of damage. But it's been through these diverse connections that Christians from around the world, their eyes have been opened to the the importance of assuming that my culture is not the the way, necessarily the only way of understanding what it means to follow Jesus and to be the church. So we have to be aware of how our culture shapes us so that we don't impose that falsely on other people. Does that make sense? So we need diverse friendships that open our eyes to our own cultural sensitivities so that we can just share Jesus Christ, period. Amen? 
The third question, am I willing to pay the cost of following him? Am I willing to pay this cost? In verse 34, Jesus takes this as a a teachable moment. He calls the crowd to him. Now there's a crowd. We don't know where they come from. All of a sudden, Jesus is talking to the crowd. He calls the crowd along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. So this calls to everybody. It's not just to the 12. It's to anybody who wants to follow Jesus. Jesus says, you, deny, you have to deny yourself. Now, we're not talking strictly about uh, self-discipline. We're, we're talking about a total denial of self-ambition, self-goals, self-direction, self-determination. One scholar says, not the things that the self wants, but the self itself is what's denied. And then Jesus says, Jesus says, take up your cross. Now, this is a very scandalous saying, but we're so used to it. But remember, the Romans used the cross for torture and humiliation. This was the worst thing that they could do to anybody. It was reserved for the worst of criminals and for those at the lowest part of society. They didn't kill everybody with the cross. They had other methods. The cross was reserved for the lowest. And usually the victim had to carry the cross beam on their back to the upright stake where they would be nailed or tied to the cross and they would die a slow, humiliating death. It's astonishing. It's astonishing that Jesus would use this as the image of what it means to follow him. It's not not a great way to please the crowd who's listening to him. Oh, you want to be my disciple? Come march to your death. It will be excruciatingly painful, but it's necessary. It's the only way. Come die. Lose your life for me, and then you will save it. How often do you consider the high cost of being a follower of Jesus? And are you willing to pay this cost every day? every day? Scholar Diane Chen, she says, it requires that one's identity, priorities, attitudes, and actions be reshaped and reformed. It is the relinquishment of all worldly values, possessions, and habits that stand in the way of obedience and fidelity to Jesus. Come and die. That's why Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So following Christ means dying to yourself, but I want to ask you one last question this morning that I think Jesus was divinely wise for asking at this moment, because once you hear about this high cost, you may revolt. You may sheepishly turn back, or you may quietly justify why that doesn't really apply to you. And so Jesus says, this is our last question, What good is it for me to gain the whole world, yet forfeit my soul? What good is it? What good would it be to turn away from the high cost of following Jesus, to turn to other things? What good would it be to have earthly wealth, but miss out on the riches of the kingdom of heaven? What good is it to take life easy here, but miss out on the eternal rest with God? What good would it be to pursue earthly glory, but to miss out on the glory of heaven? What good is it to have 
temporary pleasures, but miss out on eternal joy forevermore. What good would that be? No earthly pleasure, position, or possession can compare with the joy that we'll have with Jesus forever. Nothing here on this earth is worth your eternity. And so you must often remind yourself of the eternal value of Jesus on one hand and on the other, the worthlessness of the things of this world. This is why Paul says in 1 Timothy, hey, we brought nothing into this world, we're taking nothing out of it. Remind yourself, remind yourself that anything I gain in this world will ultimately be lost. Your life is but a vapor, it's but a breath, it's going to be over like this. And all that will matter at that moment when our body or our ashes are below the ground and friends and family walk away. The only thing that will matter is our life in Jesus. That will, that's all that will matter at that moment. Jesus' value is eternal. It's eternal. It will last forever. His kingdom is like that treasure hidden in a field. I'm going to sell everything I have. I'm going to sell everything of this world so that I might have the treasure of the kingdom of heaven. As C.S. Lewis says, give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. I'm going to invite uh, Evan Jasper to come up and lead us in a, a moment of reflection. And I'm going to put these questions for you up on the sc screen as well. Who do you say Jesus is? In what ways has your upbringing and culture impacted the way you view Him? Are you willing to pay the cost of following Him? And what good is it for you to gain the whole world and yet forfeit your soul? Let's reflect on these things. surrender all I surrender all 
to Thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. All to Jesus, I surrender, Lord. I give myself to Thee. Fill me with Thy love and power. Savior, I surrender all.